What is the future of film? Taking place at BFI Southbank London on 26th of November 2019, the Future of Film Summit is the essential event on the new technologies, strategies and partnerships shaping film's future. From game engine design to brand funding, the event is designed to empower storytellers and film professionals with expert-led sessions, inspirational keynotes and incredible networking across film, media and brands. So that's Future of Film Summit, 26th of November, tickets on sale now at futureoffilm.live. That's futureoffilm.live. Coming up in today's Film Disruptors. This world-building approach to filmmaking is important is because the technologies through which we make films and the technologies through which we make games or VR experiences are actually all collapsing together. So now um, the bleeding edge of the visual effects industry is using real-time rendering processes, which are the same technologies that was pioneered in the game industry. Hello everyone and welcome to Film Disruptors Season 3. My name is Alex Stoltz and this is the podcast where I share insights and strategies from the trailblazers who are shaping the future of film. And my guest today is the brilliant Liam Young. Liam is a little hard to define simply because he covers so much territory Trained as an architect, he now brings the principles of architecture and design to storytelling with a focus on building worlds and making films that speculate about the unintended consequences of new technology. His own work often embodies the tech innovation it's exploring. So Under the Robot Skies, for example, is entirely shot by autonomous drones. Liam currently runs a master's in well-building at Arc in Los Angeles and is incredibly articulate about not only his work, but media, technology and storytelling in general. In definitely one of the most fascinating conversations I've had on the show, we not only discover Liam's unique creative practice, but journey to the future of storytelling and how the convergence of film interactive and immersive are opening up new possibilities and opportunities for creators. This interview is part of the BAM Disruptors series recorded recently at the Bogota Audiovisual Market, or BAM, which takes place there in July. BAM is the essential event for anyone serious about engaging with the Latin American market in film or TV. And this episode would not have been possible without them. You can find out more about BAM at bogotarmarket.com. That's bogotarmarket.com. If you are enjoying the show or just want to find out more, there are a few ways to stay up to date. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify or any of your major podcast platforms. You can also sign up for updates at the home of Film Disruptors, which is Alex Stoltz. Dot com, S-T-O-L-Z. 
just enter your email to receive all the latest Film Disruptors news and episodes straight to your inbox. And this is also where you can access previous episodes, find out more about our featured guests, and get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. So that just leaves me to say thank you for listening, and now please enjoy this conversation with Liam Young, recorded at the 2019 Bogota Audiovisual Market. And I start the show by asking Liam about how his training in architecture informs his work as a storyteller. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how much people in the room know about architecture. Um, it's exceptionally slow practice. Um, it requires an extraordinary amount of money, even more money than film does. Um, uh, and I was trained in that discipline for a long time. I worked making real buildings. Um, uh, but I thought the world that I was making those buildings for um, was changing. Um, and it was changing at a pace that traditional architecture struggles to keep up with. Um, so I started to, to look for mediums that I could prototype um, new ways of thinking about what our cities and spaces were um, much faster. And it seemed like storytelling and film and animation and video games was a space where I could start to tell those stories and use those mediums to broadcast ideas about what our future cities might look like um, to audiences that, that normally don't turn up to an architecture conference or read an architecture magazine. Um, so that's how I started making films. But I still, when, when I'm making those films, I believe that I'm doing so as a designer, as an architect. Um, I'm not making the sorts of films that might come out of someone who graduated from film school Rather, I'm making films that are really spatial stories. Um, so when I start a project, I don't start with a script. I don't start with a set of characters. I start with a world. And then I fill that world with people and then generate a series of narrative through lines or kind of narrative cuts through that world that are the best way of describing that place. Um, so in many ways, I think I'm a, a spatial filmmaker in some forms. Does that make sense? It mm. does, yeah, and it's, it's fascinating. And, you're, and in terms of your, the distribution of your work, you know, who, who, who would, who's the audience for your work and how does that, how do you connect with that audience? How do you distribute? Yeah, so a lot of the films we work in um, uh, take the form of kind of um, short films, um, animations, games, um, and we launch them through um, uh, online platforms, um, through film festivals. Um, uh, because of the content that we're talking about, we often had media partners like Wired, and we launched them on um, sites like, uh, like the technology sites like Vice or Gizmodo. Because um, really what we're trying to do is find ways that the mediums of film can be used to connect to, to, audien to connect audiences with these ideas and concepts of how technology is changing our world. Um, so we um, kind of co-opt the mediums of entertainment um, and like Trojan horses, we embed within them critical ideas about what our future could look like. Um, and then we launch them with enough force that hopefully they find traction in the world um, in order to, you know, I, I guess, empower audiences um, to become more active agents in making and shaping the futures that, um, that they all want to live in. 
Um, and I think what's interesting now is that we're seeing um, more and more platforms for these kind of unconventional film formats starting to emerge. We were talking earlier about um, Netflix's series Love, Death and Robots. Um, I don't know how many people have seen it here. Um, uh, I'm not a, um, a supporter necessarily of some of the content that's inside these, um, these, these short animations, but I'm really intrigued as, in, in what it might suggest as a, as a new kind of format and platform for short form media. So Love, Death and Robots is, a, is an umbrella brand developed by Tim Miller of Blur Studios, obviously the director of Deadpool, um, who's created... Um, uh, a series of animated shorts, each directed and created by a different animator from around the world. And some of those shorts are two minutes long, some of them are 10 minutes long, some of them are eight minutes long, but they all exist on um, the Netflix platform. And they're the sorts of films that could never be sold to advertisers, both because their length varies, but because of their content is quite risky and radical. But on, in, in a context where we stream our media, we don't tune into it on a TV channel, all of these traditional formats of the 30-minute um, sitcom or the one-hour and 30-minute film are totally blown out of the water because you can dive in or out of streaming content. So um, we try and explore different forms of, of story um, and use these type of emerging platforms of, as ways to get them out into the world beyond the traditional platforms of um, distribution that, that happens at events like, like BAM. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah it, I mean, it strikes me that there's going to be more and more opportunity for, for short-form content, but it's about how people discover it and how it's packaged, and that was obviously an interesting package where you've got Tim Miller putting his name to it, and it's a way for people to discover that, and... Uh, it seems you know there are more and more opportunities for for storytellers and filmmakers to to to, to connect with an audience. It doesn't have to go through the the usual you know the old-fashioned way of you got to produce a produce a 90-minute feature film or documentary uh, and finding those partners and finding those platforms. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also a way of potentially um, offsetting risk, you know, like, like a big part of why the contemporary film market, or at least mainstream film, has become so stagnant is because it's become very risk adverse. They're putting so much money into a production, so much money into the marketing of a production. Um, you kind of need a, to, to, be able to, to be able to bank on an existing audience. Um, that's why we have sequels and, um, uh, you know, reproductions of old movies or video games or massive Marvel franchises. Hopefully what these new formats and platforms can do is create a space for new kinds of stories, the sorts of kind of stories that I'm talking about. Also new spaces for emerging storytellers, um, people without the budgets for a 90-minute film, um, but also new kinds of stories that, that might be risky, that might be untested, um, that can be buried with within a larger recognizable brand and if it works great if it doesn't they haven't really lost much we can just skip it and move on to the next one so i think it's actually a really exciting time for for emerging or young filmmakers or um more indie style narratives mm. and uh, and you, you you run a one of your many roles is you run a, a course at sci arc in in uh, la and you that, that's a storytelling storytelling master's degree right and that's tell me about what you're teaching the students there and 
what kind of methods they're using to create their work? Yeah, essentially, I, I run a master's program in world building. Um, so I'm interested in the ways that um, uh, people with different kinds of backgrounds that don't necessarily come out of film school but might have design backgrounds or fine art backgrounds or even philosophy backgrounds, um, how they can start to engage in the entertainment industry and how they can start to make stories. Um, and the way that we do that, what we teach at, at, at SciArc is, is these processes of world building, um, where as I was describing earlier, we, we start by looking at the world as it is, um, identifying a series of kind of weak signals, um, uh, possible trends that are suggesting uh, potential futures, and we exaggerate those trends. We project from the present into a series of future scenarios and we start to use the techniques of production design, concept art, to visualize um, these imaginary worlds. And then we start to um, uh, fill them with characters and we start to tell stories and we start to explore the mediums through which these worlds might be disseminated. So students from our program uh, make short films, but they also make video games, they also make VR experiences. Um, they're exploring ways that imaginary worlds can can actually connect to and reach audiences. Um, but the, and, the focus is always starting starting with the world, and then yeah. and then you think world first, and then format second. Is that sort of the yeah? Point? I mean, in in many ways, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's, when we talk about world building, oftentimes we we say that worlds are medium agnostic. Um, by that we mean that you can you can develop an imaginary world and then you can make a TV series set within that world. You can make a feature film, a short, a video game, um, a VR experience. Um, so depending on where students want to go into the industry, sometimes they'll make a game project um, or sometimes they'll make a film, sometimes they'll make a music video, um, sometimes they'll make a comic book or a sampling of all of these different mediums. Um, so we think it's a really important and interesting way to start to construct star stories and narratives, um, to do it from a very spatially orientated perspective. Um, uh, and it also, you know, is, is a real sign of, of what's happening in the industry as well, to a certain extent, um, where we see big worlds like Game of Thrones, for instance, um, which just like I'm describing, um, began as a book, become a TV series, is probably going to become a prequel TV series. I'm sure there's a Game of Thrones movie in the works um, and Game of Thrones video games. Um, and a lot of times that's what... Um, uh, big studios are interested in. They're interested in um, worlds that exist beyond the singular narrative that might be cut through it in a 90-minute feature. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's creating, creating a, a concept, I guess, but also IP, which then you can, as a, as a producer, you can reuse and repurpose. Yeah. I, mean, I think that seems like another trend, is it? Yeah. The diver I mean, uh, diversity in your portfolio as a producer thinking I'm not, I'm not tied in just to making movies. I can, I can, I can do a VR project. And each of those are a different skill set in, in lots of ways. So it's, it's not always easy just to jump across. But I think having that mentality is, is really Yeah, helpful. but I also think what's happening and, and the reason why I think this world-building approach to filmmaking is important is because the technologies through which we make films 
and the technologies through which we make games or VR experiences are actually all collapsing together. So now um, the bleeding edge of the visual effects industry is using real-time rendering processes, which are the same technologies that was pioneered in the game industry. So now we're seeing VFX producers and post-production houses that work on cinematic trailers for games, that also work on some of the cutscenes, that also might do the VFX for a big Marvel blockbuster. So I think in many ways, at least the technical skill sets of these different mediums are starting to coalesce, which I think is a really interesting space. And the other thing that's happening is at the same time, these technologies are becoming more and more democratized. By that I mean they're becoming cheaper and more accessible. Um, so before to do a big visual effects shot required silicon graphics, rendering engines, huge amounts of money. Now, after a couple of weeks of YouTube tutorials, and a decent laptop with a graphics card, you can replicate a lot of those effects. So the sorts of big world-building stories like big science fiction films, big fantasy films that used to only be the domain of big studios with mega blockbuster budgets can now be made in someone's bedroom. And I think that's a really exciting time because it means that different forms of stories um, are now being able to be told by different types of creators. And we haven't seen that before. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's revolutionary, right? I mean, uh, and so these are platforms like Unity and Unreal Engine, and, and they're cloud-based, right? Uh, they, they can be, but they're also basically that you're, you're rendering um, real time on 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 graphics cards. What 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 it, what it means is that um, some of the images um, that we might think of when we think of the production of visual effects movies, like, like massive green screen studios, blank walls, actors in green suits. Um, that's normally the way that a director will, will make a film. And that's where the, the, the way they're direct that you have to imagine and conjure the world in your own imaginary as an actor, um, or a director. But now through these real time rendering processes, a director can look through the, the camera, look at the screen and see the real-time visual effects being rendered right there in front of them. Um, so it changes the way that a, uh, a visual effects director might actually work. It changes the way that an actor might work on set because um, you can real-time prototype visual effects that in the past would have taken months and months and months to do. Um, and that's a really interesting, exciting space. Um, and that's come about because of advances in computing and rendering engines and graphics cards. Um, and we're only just on the edge of seeing what that might mean for the industry. You're listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with Liam Young, recorded at this year's BAM. And you can find out more about BAM at bogotarmarket.com. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And I start this section by asking Liam about his unique creative process. We start all of our productions um, by um, going on these these trips around the world. I mean, I, I, with with another architect in London called Kate Davies, we run a documentary studio 
um, a research studio called Unknown Fields, where we go on expeditions um, to locations that, that we don't normally talk about um, uh, in, in tourist brochures. Um, that's where we went and visited um, the Lithium Triangle, um, which is where all of our world's lithium resources is. Lithium is the, the key ingredient in all of our batteries, in our phones, in our laptops. Um, uh, we travel to behind the scenes of the fashion industry in India, um, looking at um, fast fashion um, and the pollution of that industry. And we make films and documentaries about um, how the modern world is produced. Um, and all of my uh, science fiction films develop from that same process of going out into the world, looking at what's going on, looking at what are the kind of stories that that are really critical to our lives, that but that we don't normally talk about um, in mainstream media. Um, and then I kind of exaggerate those contexts and project them um, into these future scenarios. Um, so in the Robot Skies, for example, um, began um, when we were looking at the DJI drone factory in, in China. Um, DJI is now the biggest drone producer in the world. We're now at a point where civilian drones, hobby drones, outnumber military drones by a huge proportion. DJI just released a $100 4K camera drone um, that you can learn to fly in a matter of minutes. Uh, those kinds of resolutions and control used to come with extraordinary expense and technology. Now a seven-year-old kid can do it for, for a bit of pocket money. Um, uh, and so we, wanted, we, we were there, we, we saw this amazing thing happening. We wanted to tell a story about that. We wanted to say, like, what does it look like when drones, which we think of as a thing of the future, are actually everywhere? What happens when they're as ordinary or as ubiquitous as pigeons? So always we'll start with a question like that. Like, what is a story that is important to tell now. Um, and drone technologies are at a really interesting point in their development because they have, like I said, they've become democratized. And that's when we see really strange and interesting things happen when these technologies are in the hands of everybody. Um, that's why we've wanted to make that film was to talk about what the alternative futures of this could be. Because at the time we made it, the only stories around drones were either narratives of military drones dropping bombs in Pakistan um, or narratives of drones being used as decoration in the skies for Lady Gaga Super Bowl performances. Um, so we wanted to tell a story about how drones become vehicles of surveillance, um, but how also they can be hacked and used for cultural applications, how a teenage girl might decorate her own drone, how she might use it to scribble graffiti on, how she might use it to pass notes to, to a guy she has a crush on, um, to talk about drones as not just objects of technology, but as cultural objects. Um, so when we're making these films, that's where we start, but then we think critically about like, well, well what is the technology we should use to make this film then? Um, uh, because it's no longer a case where you just go out now and get a camera and a, and a DP and you shoot something. Um, there's so many more options open to us. Um, so we think it's, it, it's critical that we choose a medium for representing these stories that comes out of the world of that story as well. Um, so we worked with a, with, a, with a lab in Belgium who were developing 
um, cinematic programming for drones, um, where a drone can um, uh, be programmed to recognize the face of an actor or the color of a sweater that they're wearing, and it can follow it through space. Um, and we use these same kind of technologies um, in our film where the drones made a lot of choices directorially about how it would choose to capture the actor. And in a way, the actors just run their lines over and over again in these routines and the drone was flying back and forth between the towers, self-correcting, um, following its own GPS paths, um, creating that, that film. And just like the surveillance drone that in the film, we wanted to to direct the film through the programming and code of the drone itself. So I think that's important when we're talking about these kind of stories is to mine the world that we're creating for the possibilities it suggests in terms of the visual style that we use or the technologies that we use to make the film itself. And you know, in, in a film um, that I, Where the City Can't See um, that's set in a future smart city, we shot that film using a range of LiDAR scanners, which are the same um, visual systems that autonomous cars, driverless cars are using to map and understand the city. Um, so again, it was, it was about trying to represent the city through the eyes of the machines that are now inhabiting it, or at least will inhabit it um, and do inhabit it in the imaginary world of that film that we're creating. Yeah, thank you. That's a really interesting you know explanation of how you, your process uh, i love the fact it begins with documentary you've got a like a real purist documentary you know a process to start with and then that leads to the the speculation and uh, and then the, the incorporation of a technology um i guess the did i, I guess uh, there the, the, there might be a point when the technology is not only capturing all of this information but editing it as well is that something you're yeah I, I think we're, we're already seeing that um i mean we um made a short film called um soul city machine um which was entirely scripted um uh, by a chatbot um that we trained on um urban management systems and and operating protocols um so in, if if our scripts can be generated already by AI, then it's certainly easy to imagine an editing AI. Um, and I'm sure there's various um, uh, kind of news teams that um, to a certain extent already use that. A lot of the, the news we consume, a lot of the scientific papers that are produced in the world are written by AI already. So in, in many ways, this is a kind of a reality that's already here. Um, that's what we wanted to, to describe in, in, in Seoul City Machine is is um, you know what what strange worlds uh, are produced? What strange new relationships we might form to our technologies are generated um, when the the systems around us have what we recognise as a kind of intelligence? Um, I think these are these are really important stories um, that extend beyond you know Spike Jones as her. Um, I don't think we're really going to fall in love with our operating systems. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a very distant future, but certainly um, our AI might generate scripts. It certainly might edit our films. I mean, in a way, it already is when we use algorithms to analyze reactions to a film and we start to 
say, okay, well, there's, there's too much time without a laugh here. We need to insert a laugh because the algorithm says that the audience was, was getting bored by about now. In a way, this stuff is already here. And this is the type of artificial intelligence that I think is, is much more real than um, Blade Runner androids and um, uh, Scarlett Johansson voiced um, uh, operating systems. As you mentioned her, you often have criticised, I think, Hollywood's visions of the future is that they're very polarized or on one hand i suppose we have the the uh, utopian vision from people trying to sell us stuff and then hollywood is often very dystopian mm-hmm. uh well which uh, which films do you sort of admire you think actually they're, they've got something interesting to say here anything which comes to mind yeah i mean i i think just to start off with the way that i judge science fiction films is not based on the accuracy of their predictions you know something like blade runner for instance is an extraordinary piece of cinema um but i don't think we should um judge it now in retrospect based on whether or not um the los angeles pictured in 1980s blade runner actually came true or not. In many ways, prediction is just a side effect of science fiction. The real value of something like Blade Runner is the questions it opened up at the time in which it was made. This is a film produced at the height of the personal electronics boom, where everyone is carrying a Sony Walkman, watching movies on VHS video players. We thought Japan was going to be this rising superpower. So a lot of the science fiction of the time projects the fears of that reality forward, which is why Blade Runner looks like this kind of Tokyo LA hybrid. Um, and of course that didn't come true. Japan had this massive economic collapse and it's still recovering from it. Um, but Blade Runner stands as this great archive and document of the fears and anxieties of the time in which it was made. So in that way, I think something like um, the Black Mirror series, um, now on Netflix, originally conceived by um, uh, Channel 4 in, in, in the UK, um, written by Charlie Brooker, is a really interesting piece of, of contemporary science fiction. Because what it does, just like the, the, the other future um, that I was talking about earlier here at BAM, um, it uh, is, is an antidote to the normal ways that we talk about technology in the media. You know, normally we, we talk about the iPhone as it's, the new iPhone is going to solve all of our problems. It's going to better connect us to each other. It's going to give us a better orgasm. It's going to uh, make our lives better, more enjoyable and easier. We don't talk about the other realities that that might set in motion. And Black Mirror as a series does well to to present an alternative vision of the future. And sometimes it's a very dark vision of the future, but I think we could describe it as a kind of productive dystopia because it has a role to create a counterpoint to the um, prevailing media narratives around technology. And I think that's a really important role that we can play as filmmakers is to talk about um, uh, uh, the alternative side to technology, to, to put in the, into the world different kinds of stories um, that a commercial agency might be more scared of. You are listening to Film Disruptors, and I'm in conversation with storyteller Liam Young. To receive new episodes of the show straight away, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or sign up at alexstoltz.com. I'll start this section by asking Liam about his thoughts on being based at the heart of the entertainment industry in LA and what he sees as the future of film. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think 
LA is actually a really interesting place to be again. Um, for a while it was um, quite stale and stagnant and everything interesting had moved away from it. Um, but now um, as San Francisco is kind of exhausting itself, a lot of the tech industry is moving down to California. We now talk not about Silicon Valley, but about Silicon Beach. Um, so I think emerging tech is now playing a really critical role in um, a reimagining of the LA entertainment industry. And I think that's actually a really exciting place. If anyone is scared, I think it's the people that have made an extraordinary living from traditional forms of filmmaking and storytelling. Um, now I think actually it's not a side of fear, but actually a real side of opportunity again, um, where these new types of storytelling um, can actually take place. You know, LA is now the center of the world for virtual reality. Um, there's some of the massive game studios in the world uh, are in LA. Um, and again, I think that what we're seeing is the way that streaming platforms, but also the technologies of VFX mean that um, uh, all of those different industries are actually coming together in, in really exciting ways. Um, where a lot of studios now have VR divisions. Um, I mean, some of those divisions have since closed after the hype of VR. Um, so we're going through a bit of a trough of disillusionment at the moment. Um, uh, but whether we believe it or not, these type of um, new mediums of storytelling are coming. Um, it, it's going to be very soon where the, the formats of augmented reality and virtual reality are actually going to collapse together. Um, uh, at the moment, we think of them as different things because, you know, VR has this big clunky headset that sits on our face. VR is something that we hold up with an iPad or our phone. Um, but augmented reality just has a few more problems to solve than virtual reality in terms of understanding the world to, you know, to make sure that a little Pokemon creature sits on the floor instead of floating in space. That's just a little computational problem that we're very soon going to solve. And when we do, what will happen is that virtual reality and augmented reality will become the same thing. And instead of this big headset, it'll just be a, you know, a veil through which we can change the opacity of the real up or down. You know, if we want to play a, an immersive video game, we just dial down the real world. But if we're running for a bus and we want to see a Google map laid out across the city, we'll just dial up the real world and see this augmented reality layer draped across it. Um, so I think what's what's going to happen is that um, the sorts of things that are at the moment trapped inside these glowing rectangles, the, the mechanisms of filmmaking and visual effects will soon be exploded from the screen and become the mechanisms of space. Um, so all of us will soon be able to occupy um, our own immersive cinematic experiences as we sit on the bus or we sit in this lecture theater and get bored with what we're talking about, or um, uh, we're in our bedrooms, we're able to project these cinematic realities onto the spaces around us. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think that's a future which is, which is very far away. Um, and what it means is that um, all of us may soon be tuned to our own urban or architectural channels where this room at the moment, which is arranged as a BAM disruptors um, uh, conversational setting, um, for someone in the audience, they might be projecting a replay of yesterday's Copa America final um, on top of it. Um, someone who's a Star Wars fan has downloaded the BAM Star Wars pack, and actually they're sitting not inside this, this theater, but they're sitting inside the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, and the audience member beside them is Chewbacca um, growling at them. Um, 
you know, I think where the, 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 the urban space will soon become, um, a cinematic space. Um, and for me as a, someone who has a background in architecture, what that means is that um, the role of a film director and the role of an architectural designer is actually becoming the same thing. Um, and we were talking earlier that, you know, the, the, the cliche about different mediums is, you know, the idea that film is a director's medium, um, TV is a writer's medium. Um, in many ways, um, VR and games, I think, is a designer's medium. Um, and if we believe this future where these different mediums are collapsing together, then the role of designers and world builders in the making of our visual stories becomes more and more critical. Well, I'm just, uh, I'm just thinking that people might be watching us and then projecting funny bunny rabbit ears or something on, <laughs> on us. Um, but it's a, that's a fascinating, uh, that's a fascinating um, vision. So all of these things are coming together. This is, this is the, the, the theme I think I'm taking out of it. All of these, the barriers are collapsing. Barriers to access are falling away as well. Technology is getting cheaper. There's more opportunities to create sto stories and create worlds. So when, you know, when you're thinking about your students or you're thinking about an, an emerging storyteller, what would be, what would be your advice to, a, to someone who wants to create uh, films, or let's not call them films, <laughs> let's create stories, um, wants to produce work, in today's world, what, what, would, you, what would you advise them, Liam? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that um, these, this convergence of mediums means that any one of those singular mediums will die. Um, they'll certainly exist in, in various forms on their own terms as well. But more importantly, I don't think that these technologies mean that story dies. Um, I still think at the heart of all these mediums will be good storytelling. And we've seen some of the early VR experiences, some, some games, um, um, some early kind of animated work um, where they might be visually spectacular, but they still fall apart and don't connect to audiences because the stories are absolutely rubbish. Um, so I think any emerging filmmaker or creator um, really needs to see story as being at the heart of what they do. And the way that we work with our students in LA is that um, we mine individual people's backgrounds for um, the individual nature of what those stories could be. Um, so a big part of what I think any emerging um, creator should be doing is thinking about what kinds of stories you can uniquely tell. You know, what stories do you have the authority to tell that no one else can? Um, what is it in your background or your interests that mean that you can, you can write about this, you can make a film about this in a way that other people couldn't. Um, identify what that is and then make that. Um, don't try and make, oh, I wanna do the next Marvel Avengers, um, I wanna do the next Game of Thrones, but in space, um, uh, you should be thinking about what kinds of stories you're uniquely positioned to be able to put into the world. And I think that will, that, that gives people their own individual and unique voice. And I think that's what audiences, but also funders uh, connect to. Um, so I think that's really what we all should be doing is looking for how we can identify and create our own unique voice as creators. Um, and then not waiting for people to f give us money, but just making a form of that. 
um, and putting that out into the world um, and seeing how people connect to it. Because uh, because you can now because there's you, know, exactly, you have these yeah. opportunities. Mm. I'd I'd like to uh, open it out to questions from the audience. For me, it's fascinating and at the same time, uh, I'm intrigued about the social implications of storytellers that are building a world and proposing a new ways of, of transforming the actual reality we are living in. Could you give us some thoughts on that and, and, and give us some insights, please? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, what I was trying to describe um, earlier today in my introduction was this idea that... Um, Fiction and storytelling is a really powerful shared medium. You know, like uh, for as long as our culture has existed, we've used stories as a way of sharing ideas. Um, uh, and I think a great tragedy of recent media production has been that um, we've valued um, empty entertainment over um, meaningful and important storytelling. You know, where we're asking questions about our stories in terms of how many people will watch it, um, how many views it will get, as opposed to why is this story important to make? Why is it important to make now? Why is it important to put into the world? Um, so I guess that's what I'm kind of advocating with this world-building approach that begins in an examination of the present, um, is to try and identify right now what are the critical stories that 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 we should be making um what stories have meaning how might they connect with audiences what are the issues and questions that we're asking ourselves and how can we create a fiction that engages with that and gets us talking about it um and like my example of black mirror earlier you know at the moment i'm focused on stories around technology um because um technology is coming to us faster than our cultural capacity to understand what it means. Um, I talk about technologies like virtual reality, um, drones, uh, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles as before culture technologies. And what I mean by that is that they've arrived faster than our critical and cultural understanding of what they might mean has. They arrive, they've arrived faster than our legal capacity to be able to regulate them. Um, so I think an, an important role of speculative storytellers, science fiction filmmakers, is to take some of these technologies that are just on the cusp of being everywhere and to imagine the future worlds that they might create, both positive and negative and everything in between, to kind of prototype what that might mean so that we can kind of work back from that to decide which of these technologies we should be regulating which ones we should be supporting, which ones we should be running away from screaming, you know? Um, like, if we think about driverless cars, for instance, these things are going to fundamentally change what cities are and how we operate and exist in cities. Um, we should be making films filled with driverless cars, exploring the different realities that they might generate, because perhaps someone who's making new traffic laws might watch that film and get some ideas about how they should be operating. 
um, we made in the robot skies to try and get people talking about drones. You know, do we want them everywhere? Do we, if, if they deliver our pizzas and our Amazon packages, it means someone is also going to put cameras on them and they're going to spy in our bedroom windows. Um, what does that reality look like? Um, what should we be doing about that? Um, uh, you know, we can now have technologies where we can engineer babies and um, CRISPR tech means we can start to design humans um, and biotech systems. Um, we should be making sci-fi films that talk about that reality and the politics and prejudices that might be generated within that so we can start to um, make more critical decisions in the lab about what sort of tech we want to be investing in and what we should be regulating against. Um, so I think, you know, at, at the moment when, when so much of our world is crafted and shaped by fiction, um, it means that our role as creators, as directors, as filmmakers, as producers um, is actually a really important one. Um, and for the most part, we've been pissing that away um, in superhero films. Um, but I, can't, I don't see why um, Iron Man can't blow up a city designed around the future of autonomous vehicles um, just as well as some kind of concept art student making some cool, um, crazy, weird skyscraper because it looks cool. Um, the, two, the two things, entertainment and intelligence, aren't mutually exclusive. Um, and that's the, the thing that I think contemporary LA should be doing better. Yeah, um, uh, the question for, because there wasn't a microphone there, the question was um, about um, uh, interest in natural technologies. Um, and um, uh, to a certain extent, we have, but I, but I guess my position is that, that all technology is natural. Um, uh, with Unknown Fields, we've done a range of documentaries, um, some in the rare earth mines of Inner Mongolia, where rare earth is mined, which is the uh, one of the key ingredients in all of our hard drives and processing chips. Um, as I said earlier, we've gone to the lithium fields. Um, the reason why your th phone is so thin and it can fit in your pocket or your laptop is so light is because of lithium technology. Um, uh, our technologies that we think of as being unnatural are actually geological in their origin. Um, all of the technologies around us um, come from the earth. They're literally wrenched out of the ground and refined and processed and then put in our pockets. Um, each of us in this room are carrying a little piece of Bolivia in our pockets right now. Um, we're carrying a little piece of Inner Mongolia in our pockets, a little piece of Australia. Um, uh, and I guess it's they're the they're the stories that we've been focusing on right now is is to try and talk about the the things that we normally discuss as being ephemeral. You know, we talk about the cloud as being something that that's just in the air. Um, our technology is lightweight; it's effortlessness; um, it, it's smoothed aluminium edges. All of these terms and and aesthetics that we use around contemporary technologies is designed to disguise the relationship that they have to ground and to nature and to the earth. Um, and we've been trying to tell those kind of stories to, to make us think twice about whether or not um, we should be throwing our phone away once um, our phone contract expires. Um, what does it mean if we recognize that our laptop is a slab of of rare earth more precious than the diamond engagement wing um, uh, that we gave our partner that was handed down to us um, from our grandmother's grandmother. You know, what does it mean for a mobile phone filled with gold and rare minerals um, to be an heirloom object? Um, you know, like 
can you imagine the scene where like, you know, you've, you're 80 years old, you're talking to your grandkids, you give them your iPhone seven, you know, like I've been, I've been saving for this for you. Um, I've been waiting for you to turn 16. Uh, I've, I've wanted to give you the iPhone seven for a long time now. I hope that you can give it to your kids as well. Um, you know, that suggests a very different relationship to technology if we really value them as precious ecological objects. Um, they're the types of stories we've been telling. Um, uh, so I do think we're in a world where nature is technology and technology is nature. Um. Fascinating. Does anyone else have a question? Um, hi. Um, congrats on everything you've said. Big admirer. Um, you've mentioned hacking. And my question is, do you think it's our responsibility as storytellers to incorporate hacking technology and hacking like the system um, for it to encourage and motivate like a better future, like a more open sourced, a more copyleft or a more like, yeah, a more a brighter future instead of a capitalist consumist future yeah thanks um uh i mean what what i was trying to do today in, in in raising these issues of these these alternative narratives around technology is is to not necessarily value or talk about hacking um in itself but to say that the dominant narratives that we you normally talk about technology through uh uh are these these very corporate visions of technology because for the most part people making tech are the same people that are trying to sell it to us. Um, uh, so narratives around hacking and misuse um, uh, are actually a really critical antidote um, to, to, to the dominant narratives that are swirling around us in the world. Um, so I do think it's important not to just put into the world stories about hacking, but to put into the world alternative visions that aren't being talked about in mainstream media production. Um, and at the moment, that means hacking is a really critical and interesting narrative that we can start to explore. And a lot of our projects have, have done that. Um, but, but hacking is also connected to, to issues of misuse and reappropriation, which I think are more interesting than the hack in itself. Um, Uh, what we're interested in is the way that these technologies actually meet the ground, how they connect with people. And what we've seen in the development of all technologies across time is that the point in which they're in the hands of everybody is the point at which really interesting things happen. You know, the internet began um, as a military system, um, but it wasn't until everyone was easily able to connect to it in their own bedrooms, on their own desks, that we saw the emergence of Web 2.0, we saw YouTube, we saw um, Instagram, we saw file sharing, we saw social media evolve. Um, that's when it became exciting and that wasn't the original intent of the internet in the first place. Similarly with drone technologies, um, again, you know, they were, they were tech invented to remotely operate in other countries but now we're seeing drone art projects, we're seeing drones being used in the Super Bowl. Um, we did a, a drone um, orchestra production with John Cale of the Velvet Underground where we attached speakers to drones and flew them around a concert hall. Um, uh, you know, there's other ways that these technologies can be used that become really interesting. Um, 
one of the writers that myself and uh, the writer Tim Morn that I they often work with always always quote is William Gibson, who was the writer of um, uh, the cyberpunk novel Neuromancer. He was the writer that that first coined the term cyberspace in that novel. He has a wonderful quote about technology um, where he says, the street finds its own uses for things. And what he means by that is that once technology gets out into the street, what it was intended for and created for is no longer relevant because people are just going to use it for their own things and their own terms. And that's the cool stuff that happens. And sometimes we call that hacking. Sometimes we just call it using um, technology. So in all of the films that we make, we try and explore how people, subcultures on the ground use this tech, you know? I'm interested in what like a, what a punk rock drone looks like. What does a goth drone look like? Um, what does a, a, you know, a, a car enthusiast driverless taxi look like? Um, you know, what, what are the subcultural implications of all our technologies, I think is a really rich ground for storytelling and also an important type of story that we should be telling. So that was my conversation with Liam Young, recorded live at the 2019 BAM. If you want to find out more about any of the guests on the show, listen to other episodes or get in touch, you can do all of this at alexstoltz.com. So that's it for this episode. I'd just like to say thank you again for listening, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. What is the future of film? Taking place at BFI Southbank London on 26th of November 2019, the Future of Film Summit is the essential event on the new technologies, strategies and partnerships shaping film's future. From game engine design to brand funding, the event is designed to empower storytellers and film professionals with expert-led sessions, inspirational keynotes and incredible networking across film, media, and brands. So that's Future of Film Summit, 26th of November. Tickets on sale now at futureoffilm.live. That's futureoffilm.live. Futureoffilm.live.